resurrection is simply not possible without some understanding of the weakness of God. Hey, this is, uh, this is the House of Mercy uh, Sunday service, and I'm glad that you found your way to it. It's the third week of Lent. Lent meaning 40th, 40 days in preparation of resurrection, spring. And, uh, new life. We are uh, very happy to have a guest preacher this week. The Reverend Winnie Vargas. She's a priest at Trinity Church Wall Street. And before that, uh, Reverend Vargas was the rector of St. Mark's in the Bowery, a historical Episcopal congregation, New York City. She's an excellent uh, preacher and a writer. She's the author of Church Meets World. So thank you so much, uh, Reverend Vargas, Winnie, for sharing with us today. And uh, also we're lucky to have uh, James Allison, Father James Allison, reading the scripture for us. Please... Mark on your calendar, Easter Sunday, outside, in person, Festival of the Resurrection at House of Mercy. We're looking forward to celebrating that with you. We have great music, like always, and uh, readings, reflections, and uh, yeah, all being together. This is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. Please join me in the prayer of invocation. God of mercy, the unclean spirits seem to be rampant these days, whatever that even means. If there's some way that we can look at the wide expanse stretching out in every direction and see some evidence that love wins, or if not quite evidence, then even some small indications that there is reason or if not quite reason, then something truer than reasons, to hope. Help us find our way there. Astonish us with your teachings. Amen. The peace of Christ be with you. Please join with us in singing House of Mercy hymn number 34, No Depression. Of men are failing These are latter days we know For dread depression now is spreading 
God's word declares it would be so. I'm going where there's no depression to a lovely land that's free from care. I'll leave this world of toil and trouble. My home's in heaven, and I'm going there. Look up, rejoice, ye holy before this awful time you'll fly For Christ will come as he has promised His bride will meet him in the sky I'm going where there's no depression To a lovely land that's free from care I'll leave this world of toil and trouble Would you please join me now in the prayers of community? I'll end each prayer with God in your mercy, and I invite you to respond. Hear our prayer. God of mercy, with all of the conflict, news cycle, clutter, and real needs that surround us, raise our heads that we might take a beat to see through it all to the brilliance of your creation, not over it all, not beyond it all, but through it, to include it in our view of the horizon and to place it in the context of creation and recreation. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, in this season of preparation, help us to make time for contemplation, for pausing, for thinking deeper, and to follow the spiritual path you would lead us on if we listen. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for those in need of spiritual, emotional, and physical healing. For all of those, all those who are in prison, prisoners of addiction, those suffering from profound loneliness, those who are mourning the loss of a loved one, received a diagnosis of a serious illness. We pray for those of us who suffer from mental illness, especially in this continued time of isolation. God of mercy, creation, and healing, hold all of these people in your arms. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. 
God of mercy, we have not loved you with all that we are. We have hurt those closest to us. We've hurt those in our lives and those who pass through our lives with the things that we have done. We ask for forgiveness and are confident that you judge us with your grace. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, meet us now in this extended time of silence. Now may we walk in the way of mercy. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this sanctuary, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for forty-six years, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone for he himself knew what was in everyone. This is the Gospel of the Lord. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Hello, it is a real pleasure for me to record this message for you into the voice memo on my phone. My name is Winnie, and I'm an Episcopal priest in New York City, and really glad to be with you and very grateful for this invitation. So I first came to New York from Los Angeles in 1996 as a young adult thinking about going to seminary. I wanted to be a priest as well, or I felt called to be one, but I wasn't sure if that would work out. 
but I knew that I could go to school. You could just take on a bunch of debt and go, is what I understood. So I was looking at schools and ended up walking by Union Theological Seminary in New York City because it was on the way to the subway stop, the station that I needed to go to, to get on the train to go to the seminary that I was actually in the city to visit, the Episcopal one. And I was walking with two friends, both of Indian origin, one Muslim, one Hindu. We were all queer young women, the children of immigrants, sort of immigrants ourselves. We walked past Union Theological Seminary, and it said so on big flags outside, and I stopped. I couldn't believe it was the Union. I had heard about it my whole life. I studied religion as a young adult. Um, so many of us of those books that I had read as an undergraduate were written by people that had gone to school there or taught there here at Union. And I had known faculty and professors um, who had been meaningful to the bishops and priests that my parents knew who had gone to Union from India. So I grew up in Dallas. I have no expectation of being where things happen, where people write or make culture. We just get to enjoy it in Dallas. So I decided to go in. I don't know how, it's not the kind of thing I would normally do, but I sort of couldn't resist. My friend stayed at the door. The place was kind of scary, like a stone fort with some religious things on the outside in the middle of this very busy city. Hugo, whose name I learned later, Hugo was the guy at the security booth inside the door. I had never seen anything like that. This was my first day in New York City. And he said, we're closed. Normally, I would have said thank you, felt really sheepish, humiliated, and left. But I asked if I could look through the glass that I could see just ahead of me and look at the courtyard. And he nodded yes, so I walked by him. I know now that what a great and generous thing it was to let somebody walk by a security booth with no ID, but I didn't know back then. So I looked, and I remember the feeling, it felt like things were crashing down in my mind, the people who had been made by that place, the words of power and of liberation that I had read, Hayward, Harrison, Bonhoeffer, Tribble, Cohn, Douglas, Tillich, West, Niebuhr, Williams, the scaffolding of my theological imagination, of my salvation, it had all happened here. Hugo, who probably needed to go home, very kindly came out from behind his big desk. He was surprisingly very short, and he reached out his hand. He said, come back tomorrow. The admissions office opens at nine. I looked down at the hand that he was using to get my attention, and it had that tattoo on the wrist that I had only ever read about in Dallas and Atlanta and Los Angeles. He was a survivor of the Nazi extermination camps, and he had read me exactly right. I nodded at him, speechless walked out to my friends, told them nothing, got on the subway, went to visit the other seminary, where, of course, everything was perfect, everyone was polite. I was greeted at the door with a welcome, not a we're closed. But I knew I was going to go back to Union at 9 a.m. the next morning, and I did. And I knew it didn't fit the plan and probably wouldn't work out, but I couldn't stay away. I overheard someone say recently, when flesh renews itself, it is the scar that remains. It was the kind of factual sentence in a podcast like this one that strikes you sometimes. I repeated it to myself to remember to write it down later, so it's probably not exactly right, but it was something like, when flesh renews itself, it is the scar that remains. Our salvation, our liberation, is worked out in that scar place. It isn't necessary anywhere else. Jesus reveals it in his own body's scars. It is a foolishness, isn't it? Who would choose a wound? 
or maybe more effectively, who would allow anyone they love to be harmed? Who would not protect or prevent harm to others if they could? Of course, in the great systems that we live in, lots of harm is caused all the time, but really personally, right? And it seems to be that our tradition tells us that harm will come. Those systems are the ways of the world. We will be harmed by them. People will be harmed by them. We will be scarred. Do not be ashamed of those scars, our tradition tells us. Those will be your guides to your own salvation. That is where we need salvation. Something greater than healing, salvation. The work of the universe to take you in as you are. As Mary Oliver says, your place in the family of things. Looking back, that was what drew me to union. And maybe you to this community, most of us to our religious communities. All of those people speaking from their scars. Those books about liberation theology told stories like one I was trying to tell or make of myself, but couldn't find words for. I didn't know we got to say those words or how we, how, if we did, that they fit together. How do you make a narrative of this life? Here were people saying who they were in the eyes of their creator, imagining together a world better, more whole, more right than the world in which they had made their lives bringing the great traditions of biblical scholarship and theology and history to bear on their scars, as if their lives mattered, assuming they did, and literally marking the path of liberation for so many of us in their seeking. I was told in the invitation today that if I just wanted to talk about Polly Murray, I could do that. I always want to talk about Polly Murray, um, but I also wanted to say a little bit about the reading, so I'm going to talk about Polly Murray. What I know about my life is that when I have the choice between foolishness and honor, foolishness is always the right choice. Now, I don't always get that choice, and I don't always get it right. But when I do, when I am in a place where Hugo might be in a place to offer a hand, that is always the right place. Polly Murray was the first black woman ordained a priest in the Episcopal Church. Our church did not ordain women until 1976, to our shame. She was ordained in 1977, as early as possible, practically. She attended that other seminary that I visited that day, and if I had known that at the time, I probably would have made a different choice. Polly Murray was 66 when she was ordained. It was her true vocation, her biographers say. Polly Murray was a black woman who grew up in North Carolina. She left extensive diaries, was well published. You can find a lot to read about Polly Murray if you haven't already. Polly Murray struggled with her gender, having herself hospitalized at times in her life. It is not clear to me what pronouns to use or how to go back in time and figure that out, but it is clear that it was a place of extraordinary pain, pain inflicted by the world, I would say, but pain, and that's how she writes about it. She was also a founder of the National Organization for Women, which is why I'm using her, but know that that is contested. Like many Episcopal priests, I feel the name Polly Murray has followed me in my life in the church. When I was being made rector of St. Mark's in the Bowery on the Lower East Side in Manhattan, a church warden brought me a little red file folder that said Polly Murray across the top. I couldn't believe it. It was a file of Polly Murray's correspondence with the rector and some articles and the funeral program of Murray's longtime companion. She had been a member of St. Mark's. I literally kept a photo of Polly Murray on my desktop from back before that was a name for your computer screen, and then I put a digital image up on the corner of my computer screen. I couldn't have told you why when I started. Our church is small, so in the ensuing 20 years, I've met lots of people that knew her. 
She was difficult, is the takeaway. She was a brilliant legal thinker. She concretely changed the world in her time. But more than anything for me, I'm not a lawyer. It was her actual living, as though she had been created on purpose, even in the places that she struggled with who she was. The wounds that the world imposed were wrong and to be settled by better law. The internal torment that the world imposed about gender were wrong. She could imagine a better way. A true plumb line in which every move had to do with the most personal details of her own life. There must be others like her, but she also kept journals and was a prolific published writer, so we get a glimpse of the courageous person and the struggles behind the public face. You and I are also working out our salvation. For me, not as publicly or articulately or with such far-reaching consequences as Polly Murray. And I don't know all of you, so maybe you are. But for those of you like me that wonder which parts are for the world and which are my own mess, the readings today invite us to be saved. Turn a table, if only for your imagination, on the ways of the world that humiliate people. Jesus is raging with you, the readings say. And notice in your own life where you are scarred, because the Bible always meets us on both of those levels. They're both really, really important, and they come together. Polly Murray demonstrates that for us, bring it all to the cross. And here we see ourselves for the great working out, which is our salvation, you and me and everybody, fussing over those scars, there to tell us this, that God made this flesh, this God made flesh is vulnerable. We have been hurt, and yet we can go on and we must tell about it so that those that come after us can imagine a world even more free. May it be so. This is God's table, and all are welcome. On the night he suffered, Jesus took bread and gave thanks for it and broke it, and gave it to the disciples to eat, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup, and he gave the cup for all to drink, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, shed for you and shed for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this and remember me. Won't you please join us in singing hymn number 33 out of your House of Mercy hymnal, If I Could Hear My Mother Pray Again. Much to me, I could hear my mother. 
Now may the peace and love at the center of all creation be with you and go with you now. Amen.